1: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about the future, and we're talking about the past at the same time. How can that be? Well, because we're discussing eschatology, the study of final things. But we're also looking and saying, because some of these final things have been in the past. And even if you don't agree with that view... There's still a lot of history to be learned. The main figure we're going to be looking at in the past is Nero. Now, if you know your Roman history, you know Nero was a bit of a monster in his time. He he was the emperor of Rome who had his own mother cured. For instance, I think it's even said that when the executioners came for her, she said, "'Strike my womb,' because it bore Nero." And for people of my eschatological persuasion, orthodox preterism, we can often look at Nero as the beast, as described in the book of Revelation. But what kind of man was Nero? How did he live his life? Well, to discuss that, I've brought on Brian Godawa, who's written a book about end-times Bible prophecy recently, but to go along with it, he's ...writing a trilogy. I don't know if Parts 2 or 3 are out now, but Part 1 is out now. And it's Tyrant, Rise of the Beast, about Nero. His name, my guest is Brian Godawa. He's an award-winning Hollywood screenwriter, to end our wars. A controversial movie and culture blogger, Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A. An internationally known teacher on faith, views, and storytelling... ...Hollywood Worldviews, an Amazon best you author of Biblical Fiction, Chronicles of the Nephilim, and Provocative Theology, God Against the Gods. His obsession of God, movies, and worldviews results in theological storytelling that blows your mind around, inspiring your soul, and he's not exaggerating. Well, that's all him saying that. I just read it straight from what he <laughs> sent me, so I want you to know it. it's his point. So, as you know on this show, I hold my guest's feet to the fire, so we're going to see if that's the case... <laughs> well, now, Brian, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Nick.
1: If my audience doesn't know about you, tell us a bit, little bit about you know, how you got to be doing what you're doing.
0: Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, I, I became a Christian when I was in high school, and so I, I always had a, uh, a love to make movies. And um, I finally did make my first movie back in uh, – 2001, uh, which was called "To End All Wars," and it starred Kiefer Sutherland. And um, I'm, I really love that one. I'm proud of it. And if people haven't seen it, it's on Amazon. You know, you should check it out. It's it's a true story of World War II, true story, and it deals a lot with um, the suffering under the the Japanese Imperial Army in. Um, uh, in war camps during World War II, but it also brings in uh, redemption and how spiritual redemption came through Christianity into the camp. It's not a Christian movie, actually; it's a secular movie, but it's got a Christian worldview to it. So that had been kind of my personal—that's been my personal dream. I've been, you know, trying to make movies ever since then. I made a few here and there. It's very, very tough to get movies made, and and you know, oftentimes there are, you know, dips. In your career uh, in Hollywood, where you know you don't get any work, and I had that—oh uh, gosh, I don't know—quite a few years back. Had a couple bad years and forced me to really start to say, "Well, what, what am I going to do with my time?" I said I always wanted to, um, always wanted to uh, write novels when, when I couldn't get movies made. Well, I wasn't making movies, so I thought maybe I should write my novel. And what it, what's interesting was was I had just written a script. Uh, that I thought would be really awesome. No one would have ever thought of it. It's, uh, based on a Bible story. And I thought, wow, this would be cool because I did research into it. And, um, and sure enough, I wrote the script and I went around town. It was real huge. Um, but it was called Noah primeval and it was about Noah and of course shortly after that i found out that darren aronofsky was making his movie so this is this is quite a few years ago and uh making his noah movie i realized oh you know i'm not going to be able to his he's going to make it i'm, I'm not going to beat him to the punch so i realized well this was so cool i thought that that he would beat me to the punch. So, I thought, well, if I can get my novel out first, then at least I can say mine was out first. So, I went ahead and wrote the novel based on the screenplay, Noah Primeval. And that became the first book of my series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And the basic heart and soul of that was was I studied the Bible and just looked into this notion of the Nephilim and the Watchers. and And, you know, I come from a reformed evangelical background so you know i'm very orthodox in in my beliefs and this is weird stuff you know and um but I realized that there's more to it than just, oh, there's giants every once in a while in the Bible, like Goliath the giant, and, you know, oh, they talk about giants being in the land of Canaan when they went to invade it. And I studied deeper, and I found, wow, no, there's a whole storyline going on here that has a spiritual theme and message to it, and it's about, you know, the war of the seed is what I call it, which is the the, the Messiah, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of Messiah, or the seed of the woman. And so anyway, I decided I wanted to retell all the Bible stories that had these giants or nuffling in it and stuff and and sort of add fiction and add a little... And show a little bit of the spiritual warfare behind the curtain that we don't see. You know, the angels, demons, or whatever. The, 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 this notion in the Bible that there are, you know, spiritual authorities behind territorial powers on earth. And this is something that was kind of new to me, but I found it. I discovered it in there through reading Michael Heiser's work. And, you know, it's this notion in Deuteronomy 32, uh, 8 through 10. And it reads about how after the, after the Tower of Babel, when God split the earth... Uh, split the nations apart and the languages. You know, he said he placed the nations under the th- sons of God, and the sons of God are these heavenly beings from God's heavenly council, and they're fallen beings. And and in the ancient world, they equated the heavenly host, the su- sun, moon, and stars. They equated them with gods or angels or demons or whatever. And so did the Jews, and um, and so they worshipped the heavenly host. It says, and and so um these were, behind these these false gods of the nations are actual demonic realities. Now, what that looks like, I don't know, but it's hinted at in the Bible, it's referred to in the Bible, and so I wanted to sort of depict that spiritual warfare, That this notion that these territorial powers, there's spiritual powers, you know, that are behind these earthly powers. You know, it comes up again in Daniel, right? You know, when Daniel talks about, uh, Gabriel's talking about how I wrestled with the prince of Persia, and that's clearly a spiritual being who is an authority over Persia, right? And and there's these battles in the heavenlies going on. So that was that was just interesting and exciting to me, and, and that's what, you know, sort of drove the whole series of the Chronicles of the Nephilim, so it's kind of like, reads like Lord of the Rings meets the Bible, you know? So anyway, I finished the end of that series with Jesus, you know, and I was realizing when I was writing this that that Jesus' parables and, and stuff, a lot of Christians think that most of his parables have to do with the second coming, you know, whether he's talking about the, you know, the... Um, you know, the dragnet or whatever, and and what they don't realize is that they're not. Most of the parables of Jesus have to do with the first coming and how God was going to judge uh, Israel for rejecting him as Messiah. It wasn't about the second coming, right? And so I was I was bringing that into the book, and I was realizing, oh my gosh, there's another, there's another series here that I have to finish. I'm not done. That's when I realized I needed to write a new series called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And that's because I had studied, um, you know, I'd studied eschatology for many years, uh, and and I'd been, I you know, I can go into that how how that how I transformed in my whole viewpoint with that. But basically, that was the launch of Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and and because of my viewpoint was that you know, like you had already mentioned, partial preterism, which is you know the belief that most all of the prophecies of the end times, the last days, those all have to do with. Uh, fulfillment of the end of the old covenant era, not the end of the world. And so um, I realized, wow, this is the Book of Revelation. And you know, Book of Revelation had always been very intimidating to me, and I tended to avoid it. But it just so happens that Ken Gentry, who was one of my um, one of my friends, as well as one of my theological heroes, is just now putting out a new uh, commentary in the Book of Revelation. That's partial preterist, and I think it's going to be a, a real game changer in, in eschatology. It's a thorough two-volume, you know, couple thousand pages, and and because I I, I know him, I was able to get a um, an early copy of it, so I could like use it as research. So that was like a helpful inspiration in, in writing it, but. Um so yeah so then I wrote the first book Tyrant Rise of the Beach which, which beast which like you said is about Nero um and 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 that's what launched the series you know so but in terms of my own personal viewpoint you know I mean we talk about preterism and of course you and I are familiar with it and I don't know how how well your uh, your listeners are but you know I I was raised as a typical you know Billy Graham type evangelical Christian back in the seventies, and you know I I stumbled upon um, Hal Lindsey's late great Planet Earth, and that was, you know Satan is alive and well on planet Earth in those books and. <laughs> And it really changed my life because it, it really made me realize, oh my gosh, you know, Jesus might be coming soon, the rapture might be happening and and it became a sort of an inspiration for me as I tried to communicate the gospel to non believers that, you know, hey, Christ is coming soon. Are you ready to stand in judgment? You know, that kind of a thing. And and that was very influential on me. But something it's something it's sort of um Something that started to bother me about it, you know, as as there's two things that happen is one, I, I, I you know, in my interaction with other Christians, I found out these other viewpoints, you know, and I, I had been taught that, no, this, this Hal Lindsey viewpoint, you know, which is basically the same thing is left behind, you know, and it's basically the same scenario that most Christians today promote, which is. There's yet to to happen in our future a seven-year Great Tribulation that occurs after a rapture. Sometimes the rapture is before, sometimes after, whatever. There's a rapture. There's a Great Tribulation. There's this uh, man who rises up as a political leader called the Antichrist, and he makes a – um, you know, makes a, a treaty or a, a covenant with Israel, rebuilds the temple, but then he, halfway through the Great Tribulation, he comes in and takes over and puts up statue of himself in the temple, and you know, all hell breaks loose and. And uh, you have all the judgments of revelation coming down on the earth, and then Jesus returns and saves us all type of thing. And, and that was the typical view that I was raised under. But when I heard other viewpoints, I was shocked because I wasn't taught these. And I think nowadays, I think Christians know a little bit more about other views. But, you know, this this view is just one of several orthodox views held by orthodox Christian scholars and, and godly men and but at the time I, I I heard preterism and I and I said wow that must be heresy that's heresy mm-hmm. you know because I wasn't taught it and and it was shocking to me but then when I started looking into it I started realizing wait a minute they're talking about this time period between A.D. forty you know the Book of Acts and and or A.D. thirty and 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 the Book of Acts and and the destruction of the temple that occurred in A.D. seventy and. And I was fascinated by the history of it. And these were the only guys talking about it because many Christian end times people don't really talk about it because it's not important to them. But I discovered, started to discover that this event that occurred when the uh, Roman armies came down and destroyed the Jerusalem and the Holy Temple never to be rebuilt since that this event was a major turning point in Judaism and Christianity because in Judaism it literally changed the face of Judaism from biblical Judaism to a completely different kind of Judaism it's not even biblical anymore right because mm-hmm. yeah. they don't have the temple They don't, you know and, and wow that's pretty interesting and that's pretty fascinating but also changed Christianity because Christianity up until that time had you know been a, a very influential cult of of judaism and and jews were you know persecuting the christians but it didn't break out of of that that sort of um subset of judaism until the temple was destroyed and that's when the gospel really went and and flourished christianity really flourished after that so i'm like you know this stuff is really fascinating and couple that with the fact that over the years I started seeing, you know, and you can see it better when you when you live decades, you know. But nevertheless, I started seeing that all these predictions that Hal Lindsey made, and, and his friends and the new guys who took over, they're always wrong, over and over and over again. And now that's been four decades, or three three and a half decades since then, and I can see that every few years the prophecy predictions change, the Bible interpretations change. You know, back in the seventies <clears throat> it was all about Russia. Russia was Gog and Magog, and some still believe that, but nevertheless, it was all about communism was, you know, the, anti- you know, the monster of the Antichrist. I heard nothing about Islam. Now it's all about Islam. And some even believe the Antichrist is going to be Islamic, right? And, you know, you look, if you look back in the, you know, 30 years ago, Hal Lindsey, all of it's wrong and all of it's been changed. You know, they thought the 10 nation confederacy of the European um, common market was the 10 toes of the, or the 10 heads or horns, the 10 horns of the beast, all this stuff. And it's all long gone. And now they have all new, new. Interpretations. So my point here was just that at, over time, it it I started realizing, you know, if they're always wrong and always changing, it's it's really sensationalized. It's really exciting to think that wow, this you know this event that just happened in the news, you know, uh, you know, it, it maybe it fulfills Ezekiel or Joel or something like that. But the reality is, is they're always wrong, and it started making me realize. Well, maybe. Look, I realize it's, it's logical to say that just because they're wrong in the past doesn't mean they're wrong now. But come on, when you look at when you look at the history of eschatology, you see this interpretation goes on not just for the last 30 years but 150 years, and it's always wrong. You have to start asking yourself, maybe the problem is not with the individual interpreters, maybe it's the system. And um, so as I explored the part, the preterist view viewpoint the preterist system and started seeing how their the fulfillment of these prophecies happened in history it blew my mind and it transformed my understanding you know and at first christians go wait a minute you know, and I, I thought this too. I thought, but if 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 Matthew twenty four is the classic, you know, chapter, but if Matthew twenty four, which talks about the destruction of the temple and then the coming of Christ on the clouds, if that was all fulfilled, what do we have to look forward to? It it feels like, you know, it's a negation of of, of the faith almost, right? Well that's only because if you're only taught that this is this is the only view and you and you don't realize there are other interpretations, you may be wrong. You're not going to be as open to that. So yeah that was sort of that you know marked my personal transformation I started looking into it and and you know the, my influences were Gary DeMar and Ken Gentry and Greg Bonson and some other partial preterists you know and um, so since that time of course you know um, Hank Hanegraaff has recently become or not recently but in the last decade and um, um, R.C. Sproul you know obviously you know key men in in, in the, the uh, body of Christ and They've become partial predators as well. And and so that's kind of where I am now where um, I realized, wow, this is fascinating, exciting. and I, And I thought, wow, you know, Left Behind sold, what, 60 million copies? I mean, it's sensationalistic, so people love that stuff. But nevertheless, the power of taking an eschatology and embodying it into a story, into a narrative that's entertaining and sort of helps you see this is how it might play out – I think that that is that is that is one of the most powerful things you can do, and I realize that really only one other guy that I know of that has has tried to do this with the um, preterist viewpoint. That's Hank Hanegraaff, you know, right? Write some novels that show how the Book of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. So that's what I started my hand at, and that's where and that's where we come to the first book, uh, Tyrant Rise of the Beast, and I'm already. You know, deep into the second book. It should be out in a few months, hopefully. And um, I think there might be – the, the fourth – the third novel is, you know, kind of the climax. And basically what I do is I'm telling the story. Just I'll just tell say the big picture of the whole thing. The, I'm telling the story from the Great Fire of Rome all the way to the destruction of the temple and the holy city in A.D. 70. So that's from A.D. 64 to about A.D. 70. So, um, and, and I'm, I'm telling the story, too, of how, you know, we don't know much about the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of conflicting, you know, uh, interpretations because we don't really have a lot of facts about it. But nevertheless, I try to tell a fictional story of what it might have been like for John to have written it in that time period and as it was – as Revelation was being sent around because I start with the, the um, Great Fire of Rome and in Tyrant Rise of the Beast – that's where we begin and, you know, because of the great fire, uh, rumors had started going around and, and they probably are true, but we don't know for sure, but that, that Nero may have set the fire because he had always spoken about how he wanted to rebuild Rome in his image for his glory and call it Neuropolis. And so people started saying, well, maybe he's the one who burned it down and killed all these people, right? Well, it doesn't matter how powerful you are, it doesn't matter if you're a Caesar, if the people start rising up. They're going to lynch you. So he needed a scapegoat. And that's where we—that's where the Christians come in. At that time period, the Christians, you know, were uh, a small sect of Judaism, so to speak. And they were talking about, you know, Christ is coming on the clouds to judge with fire and all this. So he put that two together and created that myth that the Christians started the fire. And then that's what launched the persecution that became the neuronic persecutions that we now – when we hear being thrown to the lions, the Christians thrown to the lions, that's where it came from. But he did a lot more than that. And I wanted to depict the reality of what Christians suffered, which from my perspective is the great tribulation. So the Christian suffering under Nero was the great tribulation. And I wanted to capture that historical reality as well as the theological reality and make it an entertaining story. And so the first book is sort of about – is sort of like a conspiracy thriller where, you know, Nero is persecuting all these Christians. We get to see what happened, but he also has heard about this letter that's been written, and it's subversive of the Roman Empire, right? So he he sends some people to hunt it down and find out who wrote it and kill him if they have to, and of course the letter is the letter of revelation, and and because of the persecution – one of the reasons why I think Revelation is uh, written in a very um, creative apocalyptic genre is to hide from the unbelievers the true meaning because it was very much damning and criticizing of both Israel and of Rome. And so that's one of the reasons why they use apocalyptic is, is to sort of hide it from them but to uncover it to the believers, so that they would know what's going on, right? So this is sort of a conspiracy thriller, you know, story, and and um, it uh, it's going to launch into book two. But that's sort of the that's sort of the big picture of what's going on.
1: Well, there's certainly a lot to respond to there. I, I can't but think of a few things. First off, is I was uh, having you know, a meeting with my in-laws recently. And as you know, it's Mike and Debbie Lacona, very much biblically informed people. And we're saying, I think it was for a Mother's Day dinner that we were having a few weeks ago. I said, you know, I would love to get to be a prophecy expert someday. I seriously would, because I found that if you're a prophecy expert, you can write a book every few years, get, <laughs> get everything totally wrong and yet still be a bestseller and still recognized as an expert. Mm -hmm. That is just a dream position to have. Isn't it? Yes.
0: You know, um, Hal Lindsey – look, this is a quote – and it's just – but it's also – I mean we can we can sort of laugh and joke about it, but it's really sad and serious because Hal Lindsey wrote back in the 70s when he's saying all these – making all these predictions. And keep in mind, he was kind of the one that made popular – again, he wasn't the first, but he made it the most popular with this notion that the whole heart and soul of the, the – or the ticking clock of prophecy begins – when Israel becomes a nation, because that supposedly fills the, some some prophecies, like in Matthew twenty four, and we can talk about that later. But so the heart and soul of it, and so of course, when Israel became a nation was in nineteen forty eight, and and you know he believed that when Jesus said this generation shall not pass away, well that's forty years, so it must begin with when Israel becomes a nation, and forty years places it around nineteen eighty eight. So Jesus, <clears throat> the rapture is is coming around nineteen eighty eight, right? So. Um, and there are, of course, other people who who made as equally uh, exaggerated claims. You know, there was a whole there was a book called "88 Reasons Why Crisis is Coming in 1988."
1: Edgar Rice that
0: Yep, exactly. So anyway, but Hal Lindsey said, you know, when he, people were challenging him, "Well, what if it doesn't happen?" And he says, "Well, there's a split seconds difference between a hero and a bum, and if I'm wrong, I guess I'll be a bum." Well. He is a bum by his own words. He is a complete bum, but look at him. He still has a ministry now, and that breaks my heart because what that shows is what you're saying is, is Christians are, are um, exploiting these false predictions, and they're claiming, we're not predicting, we're not predicting, but then they say things like, well, maybe this is what this means, or could it be that this Ezekiel meant this? But in reality, they are making predictions, and they're wrong. And so if we were in the old covenant right now, these people would be executed for, false pro- for making false prophecies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, I'm not suggesting that we should, but I'm just showing the extremity of the seriousness of how God takes this. And why it's, it's very dangerous and we need to address this very directly because it's not acceptable that these people should be able to keep making these false predictions and continue to be popular teachers. They need to be rejected and shunned, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And not all of them. I'm just saying the ones that are really getting out there and making these, these predictions, you know, that's, that's my perspective, you know. And of course, <clears throat> they look at me and say, well, I'm a heretic, you know, and, and it's just, it's sad because, You've you've got extreme polarization in this country already, right? Politics and and uh, left and right divide and all that stuff. Right. And now add on top of that, Christians too are becoming these these division, this heavily dividedness. Whereas, like I said, you know, I hadn't really written much anything on the end times. I just studied it. But when I finally came out with these these books, you know that then I started be, being attacked by people who are with extreme. Christians with extreme views, and again, it's really sad. We should be able to debate these issues and consider opposing viewpoints, and I don't see a lot of that happening, which is sad.
1: My, my own wife is a futurist too, and that's just fine, and I tell people we can't have this roar of how we discuss things in our house, because I mean, she's also a young earth creationist. I'm an older creationist, but she likes Hugh Ross, and so that's fine with me, too. And <laughs> yeah. So, when we're driving together or something, she'll ask me a question about, say, end times in the Bible, and I'll tell her what I think, and she'll say, well, what would someone from my viewpoint think about that? What would they say? And I will try and give her the best answer I can from that viewpoint. It's not fair, I think, for me to go and say, I'm going to give an answer that's going to make this viewpoint look really, really stupid, and... Then she'll finally see that she needs to abandon. Now I want to give it the best representation that I can and let her come to her own decisions. And she abandoned belief in the rapture, for instance, on her own. I mean, right now I understand she's still wondering if the Antichrist is really a person or if it's more of of like a spirit of sorts and things like that. And that's the way I think it should be, that we can agree to disagree agreeably.
0: That's really that's really noble uh, of you because um, I I got to tell you Nick I, I don't think and I really mean this I anybody I've interacted with who does not agree who 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 is not a preterist their view of preterism is always been wrong they've never like you talk about I agree with you we should be accurately and fairly depicting the other side and 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 look to the best viewpoint of that. And I have never, when I've talked to people who are arguing against preterism, they've never understood it really. They've always had caricatures that were created by these, you know, the futurists who who have an agenda to paint it as a bad straw man. And again, that's really sad. So I find myself when I explain things, a lot, people are like amazed and shocked because it's like they don't, they really don't get the best viewpoint. And that's been my goal of the series. Is here's here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to show, look, the some people can get bored with the theology or they can't get into theology. I understand that. But when you have a story that plays it out, it embodies that theology, or in this case eschatology, in a way that can make sense to some people who can't read the theology. However, I know that Christians are very um, – I mean, in general, Christians do read a lot. They study the Bible, and and so – you know they they like to have things proven to them and my audience in particular loves to read my research so here's what i did on chronicles of the apocalypse i wrote my novel and i footnoted the novel now this is not something you normally want to do with a novel even if it's a historical novel cuz it's like hey look at my research you know but the reason why I did it was because I know that Christians are going to be reading this, and most of them will have never seen this viewpoint depicted, and they're going to go, what? That can't be. How can you say that, right? And so I wanted to provide for them. If if you're reading the novel and you're going, where did he get that? You can just check the closest footnote, and you'll find my scholarly research behind the viewpoint. Yeah, look, I am – I am doing a lot of fiction because I have fictional characters, and like I said, we don't know everything that happened to the apostles, so I have to try to make up things, but I try to make it as consistent with the scriptures and with history, known history, as we can. And I don't just put citations, you know. It's not just boring citation footnotes. I actually cut out whole chunks of – Of arguments from different books and and different scholarly writers in order to prove the point for those who who want it, right? And so that's another element of the novel that I think is sort of unique, and Christians are loving it. And then secondly, I simultaneously released a second book called End Times Bible Prophecy, and that tells a little bit about my personal journey Uh, through my end times viewpoints, and then I also go through the Matthew chapter 24, which is a classic chapter on the end times, Jesus himself, right? Mm -hmm. And I sort of walk through that, and, and explain the things that I discovered that changed my mind. Because I know that there are some Christians who still love to read the, the theology, the eschatology. So I wanted to provide that for people so they can have it all or choose, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. But for, for my money, honestly, in today's world, I think the novel, the story is one of the most powerful ways to really capture that. And Because, I mean, look, when you're, when you're seeing Nero – and you're seeing him do these things, you know. And I mean, yeah, we heard Christians being thrown to the lions, but when you see the picture that I paint, uh, you know, Nero engaged in what he called fatal charades, right? And fatal charades was in the arena. They would like to take criminals and dress them up as characters and myths, different violent myths, and reenact the myth, right? So there would be a you know a myth of of um artemis you know the goddess artemis and how she would uh um i can't remember i can't remember the name but anyway there's some some opponent who criticized or some human who criticized artemis and and um i think it's the myth of dercy and and so she she turned him into a stag and set his own hunting dogs after him right so Nero would would reenact the myth of Dursey in the stadium by putting Christians out or criminals, but in this case Christians were criminals, right? He put the Christians in the arena and set a pack of hungry wolves or dogs or whatever on them, and they uh, and he would even like attach uh, attach stag. Um, Horns to their heads to make them look silly, or wrap them with a uh, make them naked but wrap them in an animal skin so that the animals, you know, the wild dogs or the wolves would be even more ravenous, right? And eat them up. And so these are the kind of things, and there's a lot more that he did, and I, I depict it all, but my 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 goal here is to show people how truly horrendous Christians were persecuted. And I mean, in some ways there's some similarities with what's going on now in the world. I mean, you know, Christians are being beheaded, whole Christian communities, churches are being wiped out. Christians are almost completely pushed out of Iraq now And, and, and by Muslims, they're beheading Christians. So this is happening now as well, but also, you know, as we see in America, there's a growing rise of hatred and violence against Christians and the desire to put them in jail for not accepting, um, you know, uh, for not supporting and celebrating immoral uh, immoral cultural things like gay marriage or abortion or whatever. And so, you know, we kind of, I still think there's a lesson to be learned as we look in the past and see how they treated Christians. Like take, for instance, uh, the phrase, there, there's an interesting phrase that, Nero used to use of the Christians. He called them haters of the human race. Isn't that interesting? It sounds very much like what they're calling us today. You know, cr- Christians are haters of, of the human race, right? And why do they do that? Well, because when you, when you, um, when you demonize your enemy – when you would call them Nazis, then it justifies you being able to engage in violence against them, right? right? And so if these Christians are demons and haters of the human race, well, then certainly it must be okay to engage in violence against them. So this is where it all begins. This is where it all starts to build up. So I think that there's lessons we can learn um, as well as you know, discovering how bad this stuff really was. You know, why, and why do I want to do that? Do I want to gross people out? No. Um, that's the other element that I wanted to do in these novel series – I wanted to be make it historically accurate, so I'm also footnoting history as well as theology, and um, I'm trying to make it very accurate because of the fact that I've got that, you know, I've got that sort of standard ho- standard over me that saying, "Look, Brian, you're gonna have to prove yourself, so make sure you're accurate as possible," right? Mm-hmm. So. I- if I'm saying, okay, the Great Tribulation occurred in that, that century, well, that's got to be pretty bad, right? And a lot of Christians misread passages like where Jesus says it's the you know, greatest thing to happen in all history of, of the earth you know, type of thing. And they don't realize that that's a hyperbole that was used in several places in Scripture. So it's a redundant phrase that Jews would use just to desc- – as well as Josephus, the Jewish historian, who used the same phraseology of – the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D., but not only that, but the Apostle John in in the Book of Revelation himself—you know—these are the kind of things that just would shock me and blow me out of the water because people didn't tell me this stuff. But in the Book of Revelation itself, John is writing in chapter one, verse nine, and he says, "I, John, your brother and." partner in the tribulation so he's saying right there in the in you know in the first century around in the it's probably in the 60s he's saying i am your partner in the tribulation right now so that great tribulation jesus talked about we see in the scripture itself saying it was going on at that time and so when you see scripture saying that these prophecies are being fulfilled you better listen and consider the seriousness of of such a proposition.
1: Yeah, I also was thinking that you talk about your movie to end Our wars. How I had Kiefer Sutherland in it, and I was saying, you know, my wife's family was really big into the series Twenty Four when it was on, so I think they would consider that automatically awesome at that point.
0: <laughs> yeah, check it out on Amazon. It's it's on Amazon. You can't. I don't. I don't know if you can get a DVD anymore, but you can. You can see it there. Pretty cheap.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well. I'm also thinking is that you talk about working in Hollywood and such. And I like to get a little bit because, I mean, I remember when my wife and I were engaged for Valentine's Day, our first Valentine's Day together, we went to the the uh, Percy Jackson, the Lightning Thief, in the theaters, mm-hmm. and the entrance to to the underworld there is in Hollywood. Yep. Uh, a lot of people do have this strange view, this view of Hollywood that. Everything that comes out of there is just absolutely evil. So, I mean, what's it like working in Hollywood?
0: Well, you know, it is. I won't. I won't. You know, candy-coated. It. it. is. It is very hard as a Christian, um, because the truth is, is that Hollywood is dominated by a left-wing. Um, radical sort of uh, extremist leftist worldview dominates it and we can obviously see it right now right you know in the news every week uh, you see celebrities and famous hollywood people with extreme hatred uh, towards republicans or conservatives just in general right and so if you're a conservative and you're a christian um you're, you, you're pretty much the most hated minority in Hollywood, and that's pretty much what I am, a white, male, heterosexual, Christian conservative, right? So, uh, yeah, so there is a lot of hatred. Uh, there are pe- you know, I, I know people, and I myself have experienced where people would just – find they don't even know who you are, and they just find out you're a Christian or you're a conservative, and they won't work with you. Um, and that actually occurred to, uh, occurred to me and as well as other people I know. But I don't say that as a, to be a victim. I just say it is a reality that you, if, you know, coming into Hollywood, I, I had to be prepared. You have to be uh, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You really have to let people get to know you really well before they find out you're a Christian. But even then, you, there's a real, there is often a good chance that they won't work with you again so they're they're full of hate they're full of um uh, extremist views and their views of Christians are oftentimes you know they get them from other movies right so they see Christians as nutballs and you know whatever devious diabolical people and and so they' it's it's sort of I, I say working in Working in Hollywood is like working in a uh, you know a jungle tribe that has no contact with real civilization you know because they they're completely deluded by their own worldview um, and they and they 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 have no idea about what the rest of America is like you know uh, as you and again you can see this by the things they're saying and doing right now in the media and they, they're bold about it and they, they don't realize wait, you wait you're holding up a the the decapitated head of, of a president, and you don't, you don't think that that's completely evil <laughs> you know so things like that that are going on um, it's very common uh, it's all over. However, having said that, there are still pockets of people within the industry, and this is why I'm mostly in, in, in the independent side of things because independent independent filmmaking, you find people who have like minds. And you make movies together, and then you try to get them distributed, and they're usually low budget, and they're very difficult, and you don't make much money. But nevertheless, that's kind of where I've ended up because of my viewpoint, and and I like to do stories that communicate a clear redemption, and and you know I'm not ashamed of that, and I don't make Christian movies, but I I mean I have written some Christian movies, um, only because they were jobs, and I, you know <laughs> I can make some money doing it. But um, but in terms of making movies in Hollywood. You just have to meet the right people, connect up with the certain small groups of people who have like minds, and you sort of weather the storm together. And that's kind of how you do it. And it's tough. It definitely is tough. But there also is a support there – there are support networks for you, whether you're a Christian or even if you're a conservative. Because like I said, you know, not to get political, but I mean if you're a Republican in Hollywood, it's worse than if you're a Christian. It, that didn 't used to be the case you know decades ago, but now that 's actually the case, so your politics are even worse than than religion right so um, or if you 're just a conservative, you know uh, you know if you didn 't vote for Obama, you are the devil to these people they, You talk about a religious viewpoint, you know everyone mocks Christians or religions for having these silly goofy belief in devils and all this kind of stuff, yet that 's what they actually believe about us is they see us as devils within their own context of course of what they would, how they would define it but what I'm saying is that's the, sort of the equivalent to them you know mm-hmm. so uh, yeah it's real but I wouldn't you know I don't say it to be a victim um, but it is a reality and you have to navigate it and it's difficult but you know we are growing I mean when I came to Hollywood you know over 20 some odd years ago there was only a, one or two Christian ministries that I knew of you know with hundreds of Christians who were you know, involved in the Hollywood industry. But I, I've seen over the last several decades, I've definitely seen a growth to now there's dozens, you know, a couple dozen Christian ministries in Hollywood, and there's thousands of Christians in the industry. And there's thousands of conservatives, just because you're out, just because you're a Christian in Hollywood doesn't make you conservative. It does in most most of the rest of the world, but um, in in L.A. and in, in Southern California, uh, there are a lot of liberal Christians as well. But if you're conservative, there's also conservative um, – there are sort of secret groups of conservatives who get together and, and – um, you know, try to work with each other and try to navigate the system as a support group. Because, like I said, you know, you're, you're the enemy, so you've got to be really careful in how you do it. So, yeah, it's it's tough, and that's why, you know, that's another reason why um, I've embraced writing novels because novels allow me to not have to answer to someone else who who, who judges or who looks over me with their viewpoint. Right? I get to write a novel and publish it. And uh, I'm, I don't have to answer to anybody else, and that allows me to get right out to the audience. and I love that and that's why I've written out to you know 15 books self-published. but uh, I'm making a great living at it because I go straight to the audience and I don't have to be answerable to people who may not agree with me you know on my mm-hmm. viewpoint.
1: Now <clears throat> you're writing this historic or fiction and I think you would agree that's the genre of it, right?. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, what, something I'm wondering as I'm going through the book is you do have scenes where John, Peter, and Paul show up there. Does it seem like you're maybe a little bit hesitant when you get to this, curse. you're talking about the very apostles themselves, <laughs> and you know, you kind of like, Am I going to get struck with a lightning bolt if I say the wrong thing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: You know what, actually, Nick, I kind of, yeah, I, I did have a, I would call it a sort of a <clears throat> a sacred respect, you know, a, a holy respect, and yeah, when I was going to write about the apostles, I was like, you know, I did feel very responsible because, or, or I don't know what the word would be, but um, yeah, like I was walking on sacred ground, and I wanted to, to be true to them, but but you know what something I've learned over the years cuz I mean when I started doing this I started writing I started retelling Bible stories like Noah you know Joshua David and I started I was using these you know telling spiritual stories with using some fantasy elements in it and what I mean by that is I use the genre of fantasy um as a means of showing the spiritual reality that we don't normally see right so you know the bible says there's spiritual warfare there's principalities and powers uh that are that are fighting behind the scenes but it doesn't reveal much about that right mm-hmm. and um and but i want to i want to try to depict that and that's of course that was very risky and sacred holy ground too because we don't know what it looks like but after i started doing that i just i, I felt the freedom that you know what you know uh when you're writing about the apostles they yeah they were they were god's men but they were also human mm. and you know you're a fool if you don't think that they had weak that, that they you know that they didn't have weaknesses human weaknesses etc and that they didn't joke around or whatever you know it's this the hagiography is what it's called <clears throat> that tends to gather around religious heroes is not actually biblical because the bible does show the weaknesses and frailties doesn't it of great men of god why because the greatness does not lie in us but in in god and so i i depicted you know in fact one of my goals was you know i i you know look the apostles went around they did do miracles and stuff but there's also a, a kind of humility about them you know like they you know what does paul say right like God uses the the uh, fools to confound the wise. Not many of us were great. Not many of so I I depict these apostles as very human men and almost insignificant. You know, like Paul's balding. He's got a you know he's got a crooked nose or something. You know, and he he looks very unimpressive. When Nero meets him, he's like this guy looks very unimpressive. You know, and uh, Peter of course was a fisherman, so he's kind of gruff. And, uh, you know, so I try to depict them as almost insignificant looking, um, at least before the eyes of Romans and before the eyes of others. They're expecting these great men, you know, but, and yeah, you know, they did great things, but God did great things through them, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was my goal of depicting them. And I just feel like once I start writing them, as long as you're trying to be true to this, of what you, you know, what we do know about them, that's, that's the, om- that's the only moral obligation as a dramatist, as a fictional dramatist. My, my moral obligation is to try to stay true to the spirit of what we know about things, whether it's the Bible or whether it's a historical character. Why do I say spirit? Because um, spirit as in what you think it basically was like, because the truth is, Every historical source is written by a human being that has a prejudice and a bias, you know? And so whatever historical source you're quoting is still biased. So you're just relying on someone else's bias. So yes, it can be truthful. Uh, you know, when, when, for instance, I, you know, I draw a lot from the Roman historians like Su- Suetonius and Tacitus, um, but the truth is is scholarship over the years has shown that they differed in their opinions, sometimes they were wrong, uh, so it 's like you know everyone in history can be can be somewhat off uh, and, and biblically speaking, since we don 't know everything, since it, the bible doesn 't talk about everything, then we have to make some speculations if we want to tie the uh, uh, connect the dots and that speculation I try to make it consistent as possible. Um, but that's my goal. So it's you know when you're writing fiction, this is why some more extreme, like the fundamentalist type Christians, might not like this kind of stuff because you know they might feel you're playing around with the Bible, right? And uh, you know, I, I I don't I don't know how much to answer them other than they don't even realize that the you know the Bible itself was yes, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit uses it, but you know, if you study the gospels, there's different perspectives that give you different sides of the same story. So the, it's sometimes it's not even word for word. You can't, you know, sometimes the very, like for instance, the very sermons of Jesus aren't necessarily word for word, because if you see them, the same sermon in the in a different gospel, they use different words. So which words was it? And I mean, if you are a strict fundamentalist, you have to think that the word is exactly what came out of his mouth. Well, then you've got a problem of the Bible contradicting itself. But if you realize that, no, you know, he, they're communicating from their memory. The Holy Spirit's helping them, but it's still human being memories. And they're giving different perspectives of the same sermon. So, you know, Jesus' sermon, all of the discourse, you know, it shows up in the three different gospels, and there's different usages of words. Well, that's because it's not about the exact particular picky uni words it's the basic message the basic theme the basic basic points that he's making and um so my point here is that uh you try to stay true to the logos uh you know the the uh the message that's what logos means and the message and and um uh try not to violate that and then the the added you know, fictional element that I have in these stories, like, you know, I, I depict the spiritual warfare, like I mentioned, right? So Satan's going behind the scenes, and I'm showing Satan and his minions and what they're doing. And of course, we, you know, we don't know what what they're doing, but we're just told that they're there. So yeah, I'm making it up. But I'm trying to sh- to depict what they were doing in relation to the book of Revelation being fulfilled in relation to like, for instance, you know, when we read about, we read about Ephesus, right? And you read about the city of Ephesus, and Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus, right? And, and John writes a, le- uh, a letter to Ephesus in Revelation 2, right? So when you read that, you see what was historically going on at that time period and the issues that they were struggling with. And you find, and, and so that I, I sort of depict, well, what would that look like in the spiritual realm? So that's kind of how I do it, where I try to stay consistent, but... Uh, also be entertaining as well.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you, in fact, about that, the yeah, Nephilim thing, because I'll go ahead with my own and say, I haven't really looked into this that someone like Michael Heiser thinks it's great. I me, mean, it tells you it's not some crazy theory and such, but I can't sign on a daughter a line yet and say, yeah, I think the Nephilim is a true kind of thing and such, but <laughs> see, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's very necessary for reading your book. I think even if you don't, no. you could still have like a suspended disbelief and such.
0: Yeah, yeah. But one of the, one of the elements that I do uh, carry on into, into Chronicles of the Apocalypse is the Watchers. Mm-hmm. Now, the Watchers, which, you know, it is connected to the Nephilim, but it's a separate issue. And the Watchers is rooted in, I call it the Watcher paradigm or the Divine Council paradigm. And it, it's rooted, I mentioned this earlier, Deuteronomy... Um Deuteronomy thirty-two eight through eight through ten says, When the Most High gave gave the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind, fixed the borders of the peoples. That's the Tower of Babel. But he's saying these nations, who are the nations? Well, the nations are the seventy nations in Genesis eleven, right? Because that's that's what the Tower of Babel goes on. And the seventy nations were basically in the in the Jewish mind. Uh that encompasses, encompassed the world because those are the nations out of which you know, the sons of Noah came. So it says he fixed the borders of the people. This is God. So he's like – he's fixing the national borders, separating the peoples, giving them different languages. And he says according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So this is this notion where – Sons of God are the heavenly beings of god 's counsel, and it's, you know you do a study on that throughout the whole old testament it 's always a reference to divine beings and um, <clears throat> but these are particularly fallen ones because it says that the people start worshipping them. in fact, you know later on you know uh, in Canaan, it says that um, you know Moses writes that the uh, the Canaanites were sacrificing not to gods, but to demons. You know, So in a sense, they say, yeah, they're sacrificing the false god, but actually to demons. So there's a demonic reality behind the false gods is, is the point. And this Deuteronomy 32 kind of concept is the notion that, well, there is a spiritual reality going on, and that is um, that uh, these nations that uh, do not worship God, we get this in Romans 1, right, where it talks about how uh, they refuse to, to worship God and they worship created things and then God gives them over, right? So this is this passage where he's saying at the Tower of Babel, God says – he's basically saying, okay, look, I just destroyed the earth with flood and then you still you, unite in idolatry against me. So I'm going to split you apart and I'm going to give you over to those false gods that you worship. You are now going to be under their demonic authority. So there are – so basically the nations are under – demonic authority of some kind and and then we, you know we learn there's just a, there's very little pieces of it here and there but in Daniel it becomes a little bit more clear you know you hear about the watchers and you hear about how there are Prince of Persia the Prince of Greece and these were the historical nations at that time that were um, you know going to be one taking over the other and he's describing this heavenly warfare of the watchers and, and all that. So this picture is, and then God says, but I, I, I'm going to keep for my, my inheritance is going to be Jacob or the people of Israel. So God is saying all these other nations are going to be under these false gods and they're going to be a demonic reality. But Yahweh is going to be over. He's going to be the authority over his people, Israel in, in the land of Canaan. And so that's the sort of picture that goes on throughout all the way into the new testament where paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers of wickedness behind the earthly powers so in the ancient world and this wasn't just the jews this is everyone they believed that the earthly powers dominated history and so there were there were heavenly powers behind them so when you had a battle on earth for instance going on there would be a battle in the heavenlies this is where you know uh, the prophet uh, elisha Prays that his servant would would see that as the armies on the earth are surrounding Israel he prays that that his uh, that God would pull back the curtain and show him what's going on in the heavenlies and he sees chariots and God's warriors because in the earthly battles they believe that there were heavenly battles going on so that's the that's the sort of notion and you know think about it 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 comes out in revelation as well because i mean you've got all these this you know demonic warfare and spiritual warfare going on with angels and demons and all this kind of stuff and so i i'm depicting that reality as well so in other words when rome <clears throat> rome was roman conquered the known world and so, Rome, under its authority, it had the other nations, right? So, all the other nations were under Rome. So, when Rome came down upon Israel, it was like all the nations coming down on Israel. What does that sound like? Sounds like Armageddon, doesn't it? Because Rome Rome was all the nations. And what was happening spiritually would then be that <clears throat> all those, since, you know, my, my supposition here is I, I – I draw from ancient Second Temple Jewish literature, which admittedly is not scripture and some of it's legendary, etc., but I use them as creative resources. And um, so there's the possibility that Satan may have been the watcher over Rome because what is he called in the New Testament? He's called the God of this world. What does that mean? I mean, what do you mean the God of this world? Well, if they saw the world as the Roman Empire, which they did, Oikumeni is the Greek word for world, and whenever the Bible writers use that, they usually referred were, you know, New Testament were referring to Rome. So Rome was the known world, and if Satan's the watcher over Rome, all the other authorities are under his authority. He's the God of this world of Rome, right? And so I depict these various gods of the nations, demonic entities, and they are together with those those uh, you know earthly powers. They are going to be also descending upon Israel in some capacity, and so uh, that's sort of the picture that I'm sort of painting in my story as well. It's you know it's, it's risky. It's it's speculative. I mean, speculative. I. I, I don't know what the spiritual world looks like, the heavenlies, you know. I'm just trying to capture what I think essentially, spiritually, eschatologically is going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we're near the halfway point, so I could remind everyone at this point. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. I'm talking with Brian Goddard. We're going to be discussing his book, or we are discussing it right now, Tyrant, Rise of the Beast, about Nero. But if you're here next week, now, Brian did say something <coughs> earlier about um, homosexuality and such. Well, that's kind of going to be our topic next week. I'm going to have J.L. and on. I'm going to be talking about his book, Born This Way, asking, are people truly born homosexual or is something else going on? What is the origins of homosexuality? So if you're interested in that topic, then come back next week. And if you're not interested in that topic, still come back next week anyway because, hey, it's going to be a fun show no, ba- no matter what. Uh, now, let's get back to the book, and let's start diving into it. Now, I do know some of the history. Of course, I mean, I'm an Orthodox Preterist and I study New Testament, so it's kind of important to notice, and even still, there were some things that were pretty surprising to hear about, because I've never really looked too closely at the life of Nero, but let's just start right there, because, you know, some people would say, like, describing Nero as a beast, and, like, an Antichrist figure and such, well... That's really nothing new, you know? I mean, we had eight years of Obama just now, and there were people <laughs> convinced that he was the Antichrist. Now we got Trump up there, and there are also people convinced that he's the Antichrist. This has been said about every politician, hasn't it? I mean, is Nero really that unique?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's very true. In fact, again, that's another one of the reasons why I questioned the futurist view for many years was precisely because... Um, Everyone, you know, in my day and age, it was you know people said Ronald Reagan. His name was Ronald Wilson Reagan, and each of those names had six letters in it six, 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 right? And then Gorbachev was the Russian leader at that time. He had a uh, um, a birthmark on his head, right? So people were saying, well, maybe that's the wound on the head of the beast, right? right. And it just goes on and on, right? So yeah, I've seen that too, and and um, but here's the thing. So you have to say, well, okay, are there any are there any references to this beast that ex- you know that may exclusively be referenced to some you know because you know you can always all tyrants operate the same way and then there's a sense in which they all look the same. Well, there's a couple of things that I would you know t- to to mark the strongest arguments that make me go, okay, the beast is Nero, and it really couldn't occur in any other. Uh, Scenario. Let me let me list a couple examples. First one is in, is in the Book of Revelation, and and that is um, Revelation seventeen. You know, you've got John's talking about the beast, and he's talking about the great harlot. You know, that rides the beast, the pro- great prostitute, right? And um, so there, he's describing it. And <clears throat> um, Revelation seventeen again. You know, there there are different theories, but you know, uh, I, I'm persuaded that. Uh, like J. A. T. Robinson said, all of the books of the New Testament were written before 70 A.D., including the Book of Revelation. And so, I think it was probably uh, Ken Gentry makes a good argument. It's probably written around 65 A.D. or something like that. In the midst of again, if he's in the midst of the Great Tribulation, so um, John is describing this this seven headed dragon beast, right? And and all of a sudden, he takes an aside to explain sometimes. He just describes the imagery, and you have to figure it out sometimes he gives a little bit of explanation to help you right so in revelation seventeen verse nine he says, "This calls for wisdom: The seven heads of the dragon are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and the woman is the the harlot you know the, the the scarlet harlot the the wench of of evil, and uh, oh, so you know in that time period, and, and pretty much most all scholars acknowledge you know when you say Seven mountains in the time of Rome. This, Rome was called the, mountain, uh, the city on seven hills or seven mountains. So in, in that time period, they obviously knew that had to do with Rome. So he's saying the seven heads are seven mountains in which the woman is seated. So the entity is sort of a corporate national entity, and it's Rome. But then he says, there are also seven kings. Ah, so so the imagery is not just one-to-one imagery. It's very fluid. The imagery means multiple things, and let me tell you what they mean. So he's stepping aside out of the vision and explaining this, and he says, there are also seven kings. Well, what is that? Well, what's the word King. Uh, just so you know, the word Caesar actually means king. It's the same thing. So mm-hmm. uh, it's no different. So, uh, and, and they were under Roman domination, and the Roman Caesars or Roman were the Roman kings over them. Now, the word kings in the Bible is actually used very fluidly for other things as well. Client kings, even of the princes over, you know, like uh, the Herods were called kings. So, And they weren't kings literally, right? So it's a very fluid word. But nevertheless, you've got Rome. And you've got seven kings. Well, what, what do you think that could be? Well, it's probably the Caesars, but let's look closer and find out for sure. There are seven kings. Well, who, who are these seven kings? And what are they? And he says, five of whom have fallen. One now is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must re- re- remain a little while. So he's literally saying, look, five of these seven kings that I'm talking about that I'm referencing here have already fallen. They're already dead. And one now is well. Who was the king at the time of John, the Apostle John, the Great Tribulation? It was Nero. Nero was the sixth king of Rome. So the five previous Caesars were already dead. Nero's the sixth king, and he's and John is saying the sixth one now is well. That's pretty clear that he's indicating. He's hinting at the fact loud and clear that it's Nero, but then he says something else. He says, the other has not yet come, but when he does, it must remain a little while. Here, this is a prophecy. In other words, this hasn't happened yet by the time John wrote it, right? Well, guess what? When Nero dies, the next Caesar that came into power was Galba. Galba reigned for six months, a very little while. So here you have an example in Revelation itself where it's rooting it in a particular time period of John and saying this Sixth head of the beast is now, right now is. So that's something that really strongly says to me. You know, it's linking it to Nero. That's a very strong. One. And then, you know, there are there are several others, but the classic case, of course, is going to be the mark of the beast and and the mark of the beast. And I think some people have have heard this by now, but you know, um, Revelation thirteen eighteen, he says, let let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is the number of a man is number is six, six, six. So in, interestingly, it does not say six, 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 actually. This notion like that we get from the omen, which is still one of the coolest uh, scary horror movies in history, uh, but it's not true. Uh, it's not a birthmark of six, three sixes. It's not a name like Ronald Wilson Reagan with, with six letters. It's not a UPC code with the number six, 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 in addition to other numbers. What what that is saying is the number is 666. That's a big difference. And why do I say that? Because in the ancient world, they used what's called gematria, including the Jews. And there's a lot of examples of this. And gematria is that they didn't have Arabic numerals like we do. So their letters in their alphabet stood for numbers. So what they sometimes would do is if they wanted to be poetic or if they wanted to hide something in plain sight, so to speak, like with graffiti, they might say something like uh, – there's examples of this where I love her whose name is 1012 or something like that. And you know, they literally have graffiti on the walls of this kind of thing. And they also have graffiti in reference to Nero as well. But nevertheless, so 666, what they're saying here is if you take the name and you add up the letters, which represent numbers – The leathers will add up to six hundred and sixty-six. Well, you know, is it really a coincidence that, at that time period, and in no other time period of history I know of, I I, I don't, not that I know of, the the Nero Caesar, in Hebrew, adds up to six hundred and sixty-six. Now. And there's no one else who does. So it's like, isn't that pretty obvious that that's what it is? I don't know if, I don't know if there are any other characters in history that people have been able to make that work. I, I don't think so. But it doesn't matter because if he's making this, this argument right at the time when the one character in history whose name does equal 666, it's pretty clear to me that then that's Nero. That's Nero Caesar. And secondly, it says it's the number of a man. And in other words, remember how I said earlier, the Revelation is a fluid book. And sometimes the imagery is talking about the beast. It's referring to the corporate entity of Rome and its its imperial empire, you know? But sometimes it's referring to an individual. And in this case, he's saying, I'm talking about an individual man in this case. This is the beast. This is the beast I'm talking about in this passage. It's the man, not the corporate entity. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. these these are just two examples. I mean, there are there are more, but – it's just loud and clear, and you know, even even scholars who don't have a preterist viewpoint are on. Many of them will admit that, yeah, that that that's true. That fits Nero Caesar, and we don't know anyone else in history, uh, but they still don't believe it.
1: And what about some people who will say that there are some manuscripts that say the number of the beast is six one six?
0: Yeah, and that's by the way, that's another. Strong argument for Nero because um, – now, you might be able to correct me on this, but uh, my memory is not as strong on this. But I believe that um, in Latin, the name Nero Caesar adds up to 616 or something like that so that the the scribes saw this and they were realizing that – our readers don't read in Hebrew or Greek, and so they're not gonna, it's not going to make sense to them. So they altered it so that it would match Nero Caesar in Latin. I think that's, I think that's what it was. I, I, I need to double-check my sources on that.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is Latin. I, I, it's My thing about one of them is in Latin and one of them is in Greek, but you can get it both ways.
0: And here's something very interesting for you, too, is and I, I bring this out in, in my novel as well because it's really it's really kind of interesting it's like well wait a minute revelations written in Greek and Nero Caesar's name in Greek actually comes out to a thousand and fifteen I think it is uh, so wait a minute that's not right well here's the point is Paul, John is writing in Greek but he's thinking in Hebrew and this is another thing that scholars point out is that um, even though John's writing in Greek uh, he's using a lot of Hebrew imagery and Hebrew notions, which is why some of the times the Greek in Revelation is bad grammar, because he's making it work with Hebrew concepts and notions. And that explains why at times the grammar is off, because he's doing it deliberately to, um, to communicate to his Hebrew readers, because though they write in Greek, they think in Hebrew. Very mm-hmm. fascinating.
1: <laughs> now. That being said, though, I mean, still, we can say where, you know, people have low views of politicians anyway, and Nero was no doubt a politician. Was he really that bad a guy?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, there are people who even say that all the neuronic persecution wasn't that bad, and, um, you know, and certainly. Uh, let's, let's find that verse where they, where they talk about, um, let's see, uh, Jesus talks about the great tribulation. i got to find it. Where is that? Matthew 24. Jesus talks about the great tribulation in uh, Matthew 24, verse 21. He says, there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Um, and so, yeah, so people are saying, well, Nero and what he did wasn't so great that it was not like anything else before, was it? Right? Well, as a matter of fact, this notion of the Great Tribulation was um, – actually, let me see here if I can find it. Uh, I don't know if I can I've got to get my my Bible verses together okay, there it is I'm sorry okay so um this this phraseology is like I said earlier it's it's hi- it's classic poetic hyperbole, so in other words, people saying, well, certainly obviously, nothing like this has ever happened that it's not been from the beginning of the world until now and no one never will be. The, the neurotic persecution wasn't that bad, right? Obviously, the Holocaust was worth, worse than that. Well, I would argue not necessarily because um, though the Holocaust killed 6 million Jews, I mean, the the Great Tribulation against the Christians, it almost wiped out Christianity. So as a matter of how many Christians were at the time versus how many they wiped out, it, it was very much very similar to to the, 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 the percentage of devastation of the Holocaust. But My my point here is that the phraseology, nothing will ever like it, has been used multiple times in the Bible. When you look at the Babylonian exile, when when the Jews first went into Babylon, Ezekiel 5.9, all right, he's talking about – this is to Jerusalem during Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. and he says, because of all your abominations – I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. The fathers will eat their sons, sons will eat their fathers, right? In right. Daniel 9.12, he says, Under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what, which was done to Jerusalem. He's talking about the Babylonian exile in Daniel as well. So my point is is this phrase, of, I will never do it like it again. Well, guess what? He did do it like it again, right? Because Babylonian exile, when the Romans conquered – the Jews went into exile, mm-hmm. so and they conquered the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple just like the Babylonians did. So, so if you believe that this is literal, you're going to have to say the Bible contradicts itself because God did do it again. But it's not because it's, it's poetic hyperbole. It's just simply saying, like I said earlier, Josephus, who was a famous – he's the, the only extensive historian who has written about the siege of, of A.D. 70 – and he actually participated in in it. He was on the Roman side because he got captured. And he's but in he was your like, novel. A, and and what?
1: And he's in your novel.
0: Right, he's in my novel as well. Joseph, uh, Josephus ends up in my novel. Well, he writes about the AD seventy siege in his book, and he says, in 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 the very very beginning, the preface, like. I think almost the first sentence, he says, whereas the war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that has been in our times, but in a manner of those that were ever heard of. See, it's, he says that the multitude of those that perished exceeded all the destructions that either men or God ever brought upon the world. Okay, Josephus isn't scripture, but what's the point? Ancient Jews, he's a Jew of the same time period as the New Testament. They all think and use the same kind of language, It's excessive hyperbole to describe what? A deeply spiritually significant event. It's so it's so important, significantly, it's so significant his uh spiritually that they describe it with this extreme hyperbole. But nevertheless, going back to literally to the specifics of Nero, what did Nero actually do? You know, um, it's interesting. A lot of people have depicted him, like in you know, in movies in the past, as like a madman. You know, like oh, he's you know fiddling while Nero while, while Rome burns, and and that was actually a, a statement that was made. Um, that was more of a, a, a satirical jab at him. Um, what was actually happening was at the time that Rome went on fire, Nero was in a town about forty miles south. Um, he was engaged in a music competition uh, because he was a, what's called an esthete. An esthete is you know, basically a person who worships creativity and thinks that the world will be saved through art, right? The world will be saved through beauty, through creativity. And so he fancied himself, Nero, I, I don't think Nero was – a madman, like doing, like crazy, doing crazy things. He was very, very calculated, and he did evil, great evil. But it, his motivation was because he believed that beauty was far greater than than anything else, and so he sought to become a, a artist. But in that that pursuit of beauty, he had no concern for the value of human dignity and human beings and such and and that. So, so to him, like I said, he for him. To destroy Rome and wipe it out and rebuild it, he didn't care what what that how that affected other people because he's thinking about his glory. He's a god, right? And there are many examples and cases in 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 um, historical documentation of Nero considered himself to be like Apollo. He had blonde hair, and he Apollo was his sort of his um, his uh, patron deity, and. He considered himself a god. We see we see examples on coins where it talks about how Nero Caesar was called the son of God, right? And 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 there was even passages that that in, that talked about Augustus, uh, this, the uh, the second emperor of Rome talked about Augustus as bringing good news, the same good news that the Bible uses, right? That Caesar brought good news of salvation to the world. And so in a very real sense, <clears throat> for the New Testament writers to be using the phrases, uh, you know, uh, savior, son of God, good news, they were also subversive against the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. And so Nero thought of himself as a god. He, therefore, he justified whatever he did. He would ride his chariot, through the arena, because he one of the things he wanted to be was a charioteer. Why? Because Apollo was a charioteer. However, what's interesting is, at that time period, the other powerful people um, who ruled the country thought that it was foolish of him to ride a chariot and to, to play music and all this, because to them, the artist, the the... Um, chariot the the sportsman, that kind of thing, that degraded the glory of the emperor, right? Mm-hmm. But he didn't care. So he, but but he saw it as no, I'm like Apollo. So he would ride his chariot around the arena, and he would post poles that had Christians tied up to the pole, and they had what's called the tunica molesta, which is the tunic of molestation, which was they would um, dip a garment in pitch, wrap the pitch around the Christians on the poles, and light them on fire. Mm-hmm. And, and he would do this at night sometimes. So he would ride around. These Christian torches were lit around the arena. He would ride his chariot around there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he would do things like – I already described some of the fatal charades, right? Um, yeah, so I mean y- you, know, you could go on. This is a man who did do great evil. And there's a kind of madness to evil, but it's not because he was insane. It was because he was evil. But here's something else that's very interesting that, that people may not know about. Um, Nero was also influenced by some Jews, and he may have been influenced by Josephus. Um, his wife, Nero's uh, wife, the Empress Poppaea, was known to be favorable to the Jews, and we don't know if she she probably wasn't a convert, but she was definitely one of those that really had favor. And also, there was a famous um, mime called Alaturius, who was a Jew, and he was beloved by Nero. So he would come in and you know engage in some you know personal miming for the emperor himself. And and he was also a Jew, and so he had the ear of Popia, and Popia had the ear of Nero. And then Josephus actually was probably in Rome when the great fire occurred, and he was in Rome because he was trying to free some priests who had been pr- imprisoned in Rome for some matters we don't know. So, and, and so he had the ear of Popaea. So what we have there is we have the potentiality of a conspiracy, which I actually bring out in my novel, and that is... Think about this. The Jews were always the ones scapegoats to get, you know, know, they would always be the ones sort of blamed for things. They always have been in history, and and the Romans would do it too. But now you have heavy Jewish influence in the highest office of the land with the empress herself, who's known to be very, very – to to like Judaism, if not not be one. And they have the ear of Nero, so – I I actually propose, and I I think that this is a a strong possibility, is that when Nero needed to find a scapegoat for the fires, his natural tendency would be to consider the Jews (laughs) because they were always blamed for everything anyway, right? But now you've got Jews in influence whispering in his ear, and the Jews hate the Christians, right? Because in the book of Acts, what do we see? We see the Jews were the first ones to persecute the Christians, killing them, torturing them running them out of town, and of course, the imperial cult was, um, was uh, in, in all the cities of, of the Roman Empire, outside of Rome, you had to show obeisance to the emperor by um, sacrificing t- on one of his altars. He had an altar for Caesar in, in most of the cities. Mm-hmm. And you would just, you know, you'd give a sacrifice along with the other sacrifices. Caesar didn't care what gods you worshipped as long as you placed him at the top of your pantheon, right? Right. However, the Jews would not do that because that would be idolatry, right? And so they worked out a special dispensation to allow the Jews, okay, instead of sacrificing to Caesar, you just have to perform a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar every day in your holy temple. So they say, okay, well, that's okay, that's fair, then, right? Which, of course, from the Christian's perspective, that's still idolatry, right? So you know, they're trying to to offer forgiveness, an atonement for the monster of Caesar, the god of this, you know, the the god over. You know, he was considered the god of this world in a sense, right? Um, I'm not saying he was Satan, but you, you get my point. So so you've got all this Jewish influence, and and they've got this special favor with Rome. They're whispering in Nero's ear. It's very easy to see that they were probably the ones to influence him to say, hey, the Christians, look it. They knew what the Christians were teaching. Nero wouldn't know what they're teaching probably. Well, maybe after he talked to Paul, he, he might. But nevertheless, you know, the Jews would be the ones who really knew what the Jews were, Christians were saying. So, so I think it may have been Josephus and Popaea and this Alloturius, these this Jewish influence that may have persuaded Nero to blame the great fire on the Christians and there's, a, there's theories out there about that you know so um, yeah so there's just some, some more button here I don't know I don't know if there's anything else I can think of
1: I like to remind everyone that at this point, Michelle, it's. Uh, and I remind you that everything we do here, it's supported by people like you. And it's all about serving the kingdom, doing what we can to get the word out. There in many different issues. You listen, to Michelle, we cover New Testament, we cover in times, we cover morality, we cover homosexuality, we have marriage enrichment, we got a little bit of everything here. And if you look like at at my website now at this point, we're pretty much booked nearly all the way up through August. There's, I think, one more show that we can do in August. Everything that, we're entirely booked. So we're working to bring you the very best. And you can be a part of it. And Some of you might be serving, there's not much I really think I can do for the kingdom. where you can support this ministry, which is doing all that we can, so that can build up for your your children later on down the road. Now, if you want to do this, just go and log in to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com and when you're there, you, uh, hit, you uh, go to the side and there's a link that you can hit. It's under work, help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And If you do that, you would be taking the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you come to the right place? Yes, you have. Let's keep going there. You can make a donation to Risen Jesus then, but then you get in touch with me or my wife, or Mike, or Debbie, and you say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peter's. I want to go to Waters." And they will get that donation, and they will make sure that it goes to us. It will be tax deductible entirely. And uh, you can also go on Amazon and buy ebooks that I have written or co-written. Written include well, are limited to at this time to a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed, and today's Christian. But co-written or books like Defining Inerrancy, or Groundness, or God and Natural Disasters. And finally, you can buy jewelry. Now, guys, I, I, I know we have a hard time understanding. And I'm speaking of a man here specifically. I know we have a hard time understanding the world of women many, many times. But many of us do understand one thing very well. They tend to like jewelry a lot. So, why not get something special for the lady in your life? Let's go to yeah. Jewelry store we have on the side of my website again, and you make a donation through my friend Lena Clester there. And whatever you buy, 25% of that goes to help deeper water. So you go and you buy something for your lady but you would buy anyway, and you support a ministry at the same time. And I like guess, guys, when you do this kind of thing, you can buy a piece of jewelry to make up for that screw up that I know you recently did with your lady, or you can buy a piece of jewelry in advance for that screw-up but I know you're going to make with your lady. Now, Brian, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to?
0: Well, um, one that they might want to check out is called Alliance Defending Freedom. Mm. Alliance Defending Freedom. They are a Christian legal organization in America that has fought – to protect Christians legally from the persecution that's going all around, so they go. They've gone to some Supreme Court cases. They've been involved in a lot of court cases. We need to fight to protect one another, to protect the body of Christ. These guys are godly men. I know some of them myself, and they've done great work in literally, um, you know, stopping the onslaught of the um, legal uh, persecution of Christians in in the country. You know, so um, yeah, that that might be one you might want to check out. I, I support them myself, so.
1: That's a Jay Seculo,
0: isn't it? Uh, no, oh no, no, actually J Seculo is a different one. This okay. one is Alliance Defending Freedom. Okay. And they yeah, and they um but they do the same thing that Jay does. So yeah, oh. it's similar.
1: Okay. So yeah, do you have a website for that?
0: Uh, you know what? It's just it's adf.org.
1: Okay. All right, there well, there's another place where you go to. Now, let's start talking about Nero again. People who listen to this show know that I'm a gamer. For instance, my wife and I, we love to play games together in our downtime. I mean, video games and such. And I remember reading your book about the Christians in the arena, and out comes this big Egyptian guy that they had, five of them, who's like nine feet tall or so. Yeah. I can't remember his name right off. You probably know it. But I was just, you know, looking at that point, I was thinking, yeah, I, I can already see the video game coming out based on this. And I can't believe it. I haven't seen this character show up as a boss somewhere in a game that you have to beat.
0: <laughs> yeah, his name was Gabaris, and it actually there is a hist- it's based on a historical reference. Um, I, I think it's Tacitus, but uh, or Suetonius, one of those two. And yeah, a nine foot guy, and he was one of Nero's favorites. And um, he had met him, I think, during the time of Claudius, when Claudius was in power. So yeah, I bring him out, and I, you know, we don't know anything about him. So, but he was a warrior, so I, I made him into one of the warriors in the arena as one of Nero's favorites. And and uh, yeah, I love bringing in giants into my stories. So I was amazed when I found that one, and I had actually found another giant in Josephus. Uh, during the time of Jesus, so I put that giant in my Jesus novel as well. So, uh, yeah, that that was fun. But you know, getting back to Nero though, which is really important, um, I mentioned earlier that he was an aesthete, right? He was an artist, so he was like, which is kind of like on one hand, you kind of, uh, you know, you tend to think of tyrants and dictators more as military guys, right? Right. But you know, in a way, this is what I think is so unique about my novel, and and. Um, and the series and I just, I, I just love it is, no, as a matter of fact, great evil can be done through an artist greater than you may even imagine. Maybe even greater than a military leader. Why? Because the artist in the name of beauty can destroy and create so much ugliness in order to achieve his ultimate beauty. So let me – as an example, I think – so my Nero is kind of like a Hollywood celebrity. What if a Hollywood celebrity were – Emperor. And as we see now, all that vile hatred that we see coming out of the Hollywood celebrities, right? And you see how wicked they are with their attitudes. They have they're just heartless and and hateful towards the very people who will actually, you know, go and buy their tickets to see their movies or whatever, watch their television shows. And it's it's like and, and the reason why they do that is because they believe and this is the key to it, to understanding the the um the evil behind uh, the aesthete is they believe they are above normal humankind. they believe that normal people have to live by by certain standards, morals, norms, whatever you call, but because they are godlike in their creativity they are in touch with the true ideal forms as uh plato might call it right they're in true they're in touch with the true truth that the normal common people don't understand so because of that they can live by different standards they don't have to follow these standards that the peons live by right and isn't that how hollywood celebrities live they actually start to think they're like gods and so my point is is um that I I think my Nero is a is a unique villain in in storytelling in that it shows something we haven't thought of before this notion that no actually the creative type the artist um, the Hollywood celebrity they could be among the greatest evildoers that 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 can that can be on this planet if you give them the actual unfettered power to be a tyrant and a dictator. And that's what my Nero ends up being. So I'm kind of proud of that one. I, I kind of like that because, I, and I'm an artist. So I'm when I go into the psyche of Nero, you know, and what he's thinking, I don't have to go very far to dig than my own, you know, my own struggles, you know, because, you know, this is something that, you know, maybe other people may may know, but I don't know if they do or not. But as a writer, you know. Uh, Sometimes you know how do you understand the psyche of a villain or something like that and my argument would be well you know the bible says that we all have the same sin nature so in a sense we've got the same potential in all of us that that Nero or even Hitler had yeah. it's just a question of what do we feed do we feed the hatred do we feed the violence you know do we feed this stuff um, or do we feed the good side you know the old self and the new self and all that but but the whole idea here is just the human sinful nature is in all of us so all i have to do is look in myself and look at the the attitudes and things i've struggled with and just sort of you know extrapolate it or exaggerate it or you know uh beef it up and then that gives me the villain and that and so in a, in a very real sense i know how artists think i guess is what i'm getting to and i know how we can justify things by our appeal to beauty you know like i said earlier oh imagine the grandeur the glory of rome could be so much greater if i could just Destroy it all and rebuild it. Kind of reminds me of that phrase I heard eight years ago. We're going to fundamentally transform America in seven days when I heard it the election of a different president. You know, It's this sort of like this view that in the name of creating this beautiful socialist utopia – well, of course, I have to destroy what's there right now. But everyone will will certainly realize it and appreciate the the beauty of it all. You know that kind of a that kind of a mentality. And I think that we live in a time in a time of such absurdity. I mean, I, I would never believe thirty years ago when I was you know a young college man or whatever, and I would never believe that like people would actually be arguing for socialism in in a in a world that socialism has proven to 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 murder more people than in all of his all of religions in history you know in the 20th century alone <clears throat> over close to 200 million people have been murdered by atheistic socialist regimes and and people are actually voting in the American election and voting for a man who outright claims socialism i mean it's absurd it's just utterly i thought like Wait a minute! Didn't we didn't we already learn that this not only this doesn't work, but it's immoral and cruel and leads to violence and evil? And yet socialism is actually getting uh, because in in the universities this is what they're teaching the kids, and the kids have no they have no clue they don't know, and they're only being taught this this belief. But you know, so again, I think. It's not that far removed from what can happen again if we let it, you know, if we don't stop it. Because all you need is the populace to have a socialist mentality, is what will allow a dictator to rise and take over. And you know, um, of course, some people make that claim about the current president, but but it, they're not the ones who believe in socialism, right? So it, to me, the danger would be when 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 a people get fed up and they're all so, they they believe that the answer is we just need one guy in there to come and. And, and take control and fix everything. And, and this is why I don't think anyone should trust in, uh, in uh, the current president either, even though even if he's a, even if he's more on the conservative side or the liberal side, either side, anytime a demagogue can rise up and say, "Well, I, you know, I can fix everything. Just let me, get, just give me the power." But here, that's wrong, and we've always known that in America. That's been obvious. But I don't think it's, it's it's obvious anymore because the mentality has become more socialistic, and well, you know, we need the heavy authority above us to force. You know, we need the laws and the judges to force everybody else to follow according to what we think is right. So this is the mentality that I think breeds a rise of another empire that we've got to be careful about. You know. Yeah. So, I'm getting off onto, my, uh, onto a political sermon. I better stop.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I've talked to some of my friends who do apologetics with me also. I said, you know, I can't believe some of the arguments that I have to make today because the things I have to argue for so often in my past would have been common sense so long ago. And one of the main ones I think of even here is actually this bizarre notion that men and women are really different kinds of beings. And I never would have thought five years ago I'd have to be making arguments for why men should be using a men's room and women should be using a women's room. And yet now it's essential. I have to do that.
0: I know. I agree. It's just, it's just it's sort of like you you almost don't know. Wait, where do I begin? Because I I, I thought it's obvious, isn't it self evident? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's but again, <clears throat> but I think that this this sort of this shows the difficulty of the i call it the insanity of evil where you know when evil takes hold of a culture the, it will, it gets to the point where it's completely irrational and you almost can't fight it with reason because it's like reason doesn't matter so so you know you're making your arguments but they don't care about reason like science they don't care about science i thought we were a scientific culture wait a minute i thought the big wrong was to be anti-scientific, right? All those creationists, they're anti-scientific. You know, the, 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 the big calumny that you spread on other people is to call them anti-science. And yet, the whole gender movement is completely anti-science and it doesn't matter all of a sudden. Mm. So in other words, even in our scientific culture, it's becoming anti-science. Even in our rationalistic modern culture, everything 's becoming irrational, and so you it 's almost like we have to learn to fight with new weapons. By the way, this does get me back to uh, the power of storytelling because I think that while I definitely you know I, and i 've written other books on this by the way about rationality versus imagination. I think we need both. We definitely have to yeah. have both. But what, I'm, what I would argue, you know, and I know you're like this too, because we're both... I was raised on apologetics. I learned theology through apologetics, so I, I, you know, I'm totally... I, I've followed it for years, but I've come to realize that there's a real danger in relying too heavily on just rationality and reason because mm-hmm. we're human beings and we, need, we have an imaginative side, and look at what Hollywood is doing. Hollywood... Culture – here's the key is politics is downstream from culture. And so, yes, you can do a lot of changes through politics, but culture is more important because it's the culture that changes people's minds that allows you to make the laws. And so really the people who are controlling the culture have the most influence, which is why we have to be telling better stories. And again, this gets back to my motivation for why I'm writing my novels is I want to communicate this – Theological truth that also touches on the political realm, the social realm, the moral realm, because I believe that there 's power in telling a great story that embodies my theology, embodies my my views and that 's what I think uh, Chronicles of the Apocalypse does on many different levels, and why we as Christians need to become better storytellers because if you tell a better sto- you can win by telling a better story mm-hmm. now that you know that might make the rationalist in us angry wait a minute that 's not fair you know but uh, it's not necessarily wrong, though, either. You know, it's like sometimes the person who does tell the better story wins, and it may not be lo- it may be a logical fallacy, but if it's a better story, there's still power in it, and that's why we have to understand that value and to become better storytellers ourselves. You got me going on another one of my my personal sermons when it comes to apologetics.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it strikes me that that's one of the problems we have in our culture today is that you. Know, you could, someone say, oh, Brian, we are doing that. I mean, we've got Christian movies coming out more and more every day. And what I want to say is, yeah, who's going to see those movies? Other Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. We're very good at reaching ourselves.
0: Yes, that's so true. And, and and But you know what? I have to say this, though. I have to say that um, I'm encouraged because I, I've spoken a lot of Christian uh, colleges around the country and their film departments, uh, I have seen that the new generation of – look, the millennials have – there's a lot of problems with the millennial generation and uh, there's some real significant problems. But there's the, in terms of the positive side of things, I see that they get it. They understand. They want to become great filmmakers and they want to go to Hollywood and make Hollywood movies, but with a Christian worldview. They don't want to make Christian movies as much anymore. I mean, there's – there is the market for it. But what I'm saying is I do see an upsurge of interest in young Christian filmmakers to want to make quality Hollywood movies but to actually embed their Christian worldview. And, and I'm encouraged by that. There, There is – a Rise in Appreciation. And look, my books are for the Christian market, so I'm I'm guilty of that my, myself, but I've also made other movies that aren't, and my, my pursuit has always been to try to also tell stories that can connect with the real world at large. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's tell better stories on every level.
1: Yeah, and part of what I liked about Tyrant Rise of the Beast, also something you said earlier, that so many of the things... That are going on, that are the way the Christians were depicted by the culture and such. Uh, Something. Wait, wait. Is this about ancient times or is this about present times?
0: Yes, yes. I. One of the things that my research uncovered was I wanted to show that connection. A lot of times you'll you'll have in a novel what they call uh, um, an anachronism, which is like you 're writing about the past, but you 're using modern language or you 're using something that they didn 't have back then it didn 't happen till hundred years later or whatever you know in other words, things that are historically out of place but um, and some people might read my book and if they didn 't know it, they might think that, that that I was you know putting anachronisms in there why because I deal with uh, homosexuality, I deal with abortion, I deal with issues that are really hot today. Well, they were going on back then, and the Christians were attacked because they didn't accept the homosexuality of the time period, so they were persecuted. Hmm, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The Christians of that time, or uh, the culture of that time, engaged in heavy abortion. And we're talking, you know, if you think about it, modern-day abortion, you'd think we have these, you know, high technological culture and all this. But a lot of the instruments that they use on abortion are still pretty basically barbarically primal, you know I mean they cut up the bodies of the infants, you know they give them drugs to expel them they you know they 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 pull a body a, a baby out halfway, leave the head inside, and then stab the brains with scissors and that 's called partial birth abortion, so that they can do the abortion and get away with murder. Uh, it's easier when it's halfway out of the womb, right? So they're doing all these bizarre things now, but they're really, they did that stuff in Rome. And I did research and I found out. And so I put that in my novel. I actually have that stuff going on in my novel. And I know people are going to go, what? That sounds like today. And yes, it really was happening back then. Abortion, in fact, abortion was so popular that that's why uh, Hippocrates put it in his oath. The Hippocratic oath says, the original one, it's not in there anymore of course, right? But the original one says, I will not do any abortions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one of the things that they used to do um, was that when the Romans had a baby, if they didn't want it for whatever reason, convenience sake, sounds familiar, uh, couldn't afford it, or it was female, female, uh, deformed, whatever. They would... They would just take the baby and they would do what's called infant exposure. And what that means is they would take the baby out into the forest, leave it on a stump or on the ground, and just walk away. Leave it to the elements, which of course would ultimately be wild animals, right? Um, But Christians became uh, – they got angry with the Christians because the Christians would find out about that. They would follow them and take the babies and adopt them. And so the Christians were criticized, just like the pro-life centers are being attacked today by Planned Parenthood, right? And you know you got the same thing back then going on. You know what? Human nature doesn't change, uh, except with, of course, the the Holy Spirit of God. But um, you know, mankind is sinful, and we just go through the same cycles of evil. And that's another element that I bring out in the novel is is how how things how much things change, and yet how much they stay the same.
1: Yeah, and, and people just really don't pay attention to what was going on. Rome also saw itself as a very tolerant society back then. Hey, we're coming in, we're letting all these people worship their gods all they want to. But yeah. just like today, that tolerance had a certain limit. But, you know, We'll be tolerant until, you know, you really disagree with us, and then our tolerance goes right out the window.
0: Yeah, you know, I, uh, I have that – I call it ancient multiculturalism, you know, ancient Roman multiculturalism. It's like, yeah, I think I said this earlier where, you know, um, that one of, the, one of the advantages of Rome, one of, one of the reasons why they were able to rule such a wide berth was they allowed people, their own cultures – and they allowed them to continue to worship their own gods just so long as they added Caesar to the top of their pantheon. And just so long as they, you know, they made some sacrifices to Caesar, they were allowed to keep – And if you allow a culture to keep its own sort of subculture, then they're happy and, and you know, or, or shall we say they're compliant. And Rome did that, but of course you had to add Caesar. And like I mentioned, the Christians and the Jews would not worship Caesar. And so they ultimately became the scapegoats, but like I said, the Jews got out of it because they were able to uh, have that sacrifice on behalf of Caesar. That gave them special uh, dispensation to Caesar, but the Christians didn't get anything. So what you had was, again, the same thing that we have today – uh, Roman polytheism is the same thing as modern multiculturalism. All gods are okay, all gods are the same, just so long as you worship the state. Yes. Right? Just so long as you the state is the true god that that just determines what's right and wrong. And because you Christians have this god that that you won't bow the knee to the state, now we're going to take you down. We're going to mm-hmm. take you out. It's, isn't that the same thing that's going on today? Absolutely. That's, that's all in my novel as well because you know, one of the things that happened was the – by the way, let's, 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 uh, let me address this because it's relevant to everything here. The, the mark of the beast, right? What's the mark of the beast? That's another one of those things that all for the years, back in my days, it was the UPC symbol, right? We're going to get the UPC symbol with the three sixes on it, right? Now it's a computer chip. Well, guess what? The mark – the notion of being marked is a very common biblical notion already, and it basically, even within the book of Revelation, it's clearly and obviously a symbol of ownership or submission. It's symbolic. It's, a, it's not a literal mark, is my point. Because in Revelation, right after it talks about the mark of the beast, it talks about the children of the 144,000 who aren't going to worship the beast, they are marked on the foreheads by the seal of God instead of the seal of the beast. It's a contrast, right? Well, that's not a literal mark. If you look back in Deuteronomy 6, uh, when, when God's, Moses giving the, the law of God to his, to his children, he says, look, these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Well, that's not literal, right? right? He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be... As frontlets between your eyes, the the very context there is clearly he's saying the law of God should guide everything you say, you everything you think, and everything you do. Think your forehead, right? That's your head, thinking, and 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 your hand is what you do. So everything you think and do, the way you live your life, should be guided by the law of God. It's it's symbolic. So when he says the mark of the beast. He's talking about being ownership, being submitted to that deity instead of the living God. And then people will say, well, but but wait a minute. It says, it says that you cannot – let me see if I can get there quick. Uh, Revelation 13. It says that you cannot um, – Buy or sell. Buy or sell unless you have the mark. Well, that sounds like pretty real-world stuff. Well, this is where the imperial cult comes in. I mentioned earlier. The imperial cult was – if you were a part of the Roman Empire, you had to have this—you know—you had to have this um, uh, this altar to Caesar in your town, and you give obeisance all that, right? Well, if you didn't participate in the imperial cult, you would be economically and politically stigmatized. This is what was going on. If you look at the Revelation letters to the different cities in Revelation, you know, like uh, Philadelphia and all that, those churches, um, it's very clearly you get this notion that Christians weren't participating in some of the idolatrous stuff that was going on in each of those cities, and so they were being rejected. And so what happened is the Christians wouldn't engage in the imperial cult, so they would be economically pushed out. Mm -hmm. And even the Jews, the Jews were fine. Why? Because they had their sacrifice in Jerusalem, so they were accepted in the imperial cult, even to the point where you have the guilds, and this is where some of the letters of Revelation come into play. You had guilds, like I think it was... um, (coughs) It was Thyatira, you know, Jezebel, and whatever, and um, they had different trade guilds. And in order to be a member of the guild, you had to participate in the imperial cult. So the Christians who were not engaging in the imperial cult were not allowed to be in the guilds. They were not; they were economically pushed out. So this is where the mark of the beast comes in. In into play is I think it is basically the imperial cult of Caesar that was basically marking you as. Caesar's own, as submission as submitted to the empire as uh, you know Caesar is your lord and savior etc etc and so the christians were uh, being economically pushed out because they weren't participating in that imperial cult and that yeah that's and there's a famous book on on this if if um, many people think that the letters of revelation the seven letters to the seven churches are symbolic of history or something like that but I think that they're very clearly referencing historical things that were going on in that first century. They're historical churches, and there's a famous book that you can probably find it free on the internet because it's kind of old by William Ramsay about the seven churches of of Revelation, and I think it's even called the Seven Churches of Revelation. But Ramsey, Ramsay, R A M um, S A Y, you know what? I think I have that book at my website where you can get the freebie of the PDF download. But anyway, he goes into the historical background of each of those churches in the book of Revelation to show that it was very historically rooted. It wasn't some kind of symbolic uh, reference to history. It was actually rooted in historical churches.
1: We have The Kindar version I saw is 99 cents, so it's not free, but it, it's close. Close and, enough. Yeah. Now, we have only got a few minutes for this final <coughs> point left here, but a lot of people will be hearing this and think that we're Surely, though, everyone knew that this kind of thing was wrong. I think people forget that for morality we have, it largely does come from our great Christian influence. Course. There was a letter you can read that a Roman soldier wrote back to his wife while he was out traveling. And it's sweet. It's affectionate. saying things like, oh, honey, I miss you so much. I'm out here traveling. I'm doing what I can. I hope to be... Home soon. I hope you're doing well. I, I understand our child is about to be born. If it's a girl, please just leave it wild and let it die. Love you, bye. <laughs> I, it, it's written just that kind of style. Wow. That. What?
0: what Where's is that? Is that a book in a book? Or
1: I'd have to track it down. But it's oh, an actual. Just, you letter. you read it. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it's yesterday, and people are, forget that the cultural milieu of the time this was seen as morally acceptable, and no one questioned it that we have moved past that point today it's not because we're just so brilliantly enlightened such it's because we got a christian influence
0: yeah absolutely and which also you know one of the things is you know um when we're talking about end times and stuff and I, i've had to deal with this because i've been other podcasts with people who are futurists and you know they're kind enough to entertain uh, our discussion and you know one of the things i say is that look you guys Just because I don't believe there's a future Antichrist and a future Great Tribulation in terms of the Bible doesn't mean I don't think there are evil people who are trying to take over the world and that it's possible. And it doesn't mean that I don't believe that we should, uh, you know, we should worry about tyrants. I st- it's just I don't believe that there's some kind of biblical prophecy fulfillment but if you look at history it can still happen so we can fight together to stop these things like okay I don't believe a chip in the hand is the mark of the beast but I still don't like the idea of a chip in the hand because that's a means of controlling you the government can then control you can track you can have all your you know I believe that that's the a road to tyranny so I'll fight it along with the futurist, right? Not because I believe it's the Antichrist, but because I believe it's tyrannical no matter what. And so when Christians who, are, who feel like – I would admit, if I look around me, sometimes it really is easy to think that, you know, we're on the road to, Ar- to Armageddon, you know, because, I mean, the things like we're, we've talked about, the crazy insanity of evil – that that things that are becoming so bad and it, there's just no one stopping it. There's no one standing up to stop it, so to speak. I mean, obviously, there are kids fighting it. But but it just seems to be like this snowball that's rolling. And, and you know, what new crazy thing are, gonna, are they going to stand up and command us to do, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's easy to believe that, that things are getting worse. But um, like you said, look – in my novel, I try to make it come out that – Things were worse back in Rome. Things have been worse. And things get better and they get worse again. So we have to deal with that cycle and try to make things better. But my point is, is yeah, you're right. Um, if you look at the mentality and the way they lived in Rome, it was, it was far more anti-Christ than it is now. And, you know, get some encouragement from that and, and some realization that, okay, Christianity has helped. We've got to fight for it. We've got to keep it because if we don't fight for it, We'll lose it, and that can happen. But that, if America falls, that doesn't mean the whole world went to hell in a hang basket. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. uh, kingdoms rise and fall, and uh, that happens throughout all of history. And we may just be in the downside of, of the fall of, of a certain civilization, but we can fight to protect what's right, and we can know that. We can have some cur- uh, draw some encouragement from the fact that it was worse under Rome. Look at what the Christians in Rome had to deal with, and they were a true minority, right? I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking, you know, who knows a uh, hundred thousand or whatever in the whole of the Roman Empire. I mean, not even right. And so, and those guys were being hunted down and persecuted, and almost wiped out. They were almost wiped out. That was that was one of the reasons why the Book of Revelation was written by John was because they were fearing the fact that this. Uh, the new Christianity we thought was going to grow is being wiped out, and John's saying, don't worry, the the martyrs will be vindicated, you martyrs will be vindicated, Jesus will be vindicated, because he is going to come in judgment upon Jerusalem, upon the people who pierced him, right? And and that's going to change the world for us, and sure enough, it did. So, you know, the the, the belief is you know and this is something that we didn't even address right the whole thing of the cloud coming of Christ and how yeah. um you know that wasn't that wasn't the second coming that was a judgment coming on Israel because there are different varieties of comings god comes in different ways upon different nations and tribes in the bible he comes in judgment he comes in judgment and then when jesus comes in judgment on israel that's what the book of revelation is about that's one of the you know that's In terms of the big picture, people say, well, what's the point of Revelation then? Well, the point of Revelation is this. They're in the midst of the Great Tribulation. They think they're going to die out. So John wants to encourage them and say, trust me, you will be vindicated. Christ will be vindicated. Why? Because the very Jews that persecuted Christ and and murdered him and handed him over to the Romans and are now helping the Romans to persecute you – right before the before the the great fire christians were left alone because the romans didn't even know who they were they're just some sect of judaism so so once that stuff was in, in, go- in process John's saying don't worry the jews will be taken care of the, those who 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 said jesus wasn't messiah they'll be sorry they'll be judged Jesus is coming to judge and destroy their city and destroy the the temple. And secondly, the book of Revelation is trying to make this point that, you know, um, the old covenant will be completely obliterated when – the Old Covenant elements, the physical historical elements of the Old Covenant are destroyed. What were the physical elements of the Old Covenant? The temple and the holy city, right? The temple was the heart and soul of Old Testament Judaism, and God said that was done away with in Christ, but yet it was still standing. So that's why they, the, the whole New Testament almost, you know, most of the New Testament was written because they were... the. Jewish Christians were screwed up. A lot of them were saying, well, yeah, Gentiles can be saved, but then they also got to become Jews. They got to follow the law. They have to get atonement. They have to go to temple. And Paul's and all these New Testament writers are saying, no, no. The book of Hebrews is saying, no, Christ is once for all. But you'll see because – you know, the 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 problem was because the temple was still standing, that heart and soul of the Old t- Covenant was still up, and that was causing the confusion in the church, basically. So, God is saying, look, the New Covenant is here, but the Old Covenant elements are still around, so I'm going to come and destroy those and obliterate them in history once and for all. To prove historically, to vindicate historically what has already occurred spiritually in Christ at the cross. So see how this makes sense? Our God is not a God of abstract theology. He's a God of history. So when he, at the cross, yes, Christ truly inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. But that time period of 40 years before, until the temple was destroyed was a time period where the old covenant was fading out and the new covenant was fading in, and when the temple was fully destroyed, that's when it was solidified that the old covenant has vanished away completely, the new covenant is here to stay, and God proved historically what he was trying to tell them theologically, if that makes sense. This is why one of my one of my my favorite verses about this whole thing is in the book of Hebrews, chapter eight, verse thirteen. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is is talking about how the new covenant is better than the old. Christ has a better ministry. The old covenant was full of faults. That's why we have the new covenant, right? And he quotes Jeremiah. Behold, the days of a new covenant are coming, right? Then at the very end, he says, and in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Okay, that makes sense. Old, new. But then he says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Then he gives three statements it's like indicating that, oh, it's not obsolete yet, it's only becoming, it's growing old, it's not fully you know, there, and, and it's ready to vanish away, but it hasn't, hasn't vanished away. Well, what does he mean? What he's saying is they – he was writing this before the temple was destroyed, and he's basically saying when the temple is destroyed, that's when it's going to be completely vanished and done away with, but it's not there yet. So we're in this transition period before that old covenant – is historically wiped out for us. And then the clarity of the new covenant gospel is there. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's that that finalization of the end of the old old covenant age and the consummation of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Why? Because the heart and soul is this. Uh, The heart and soul of Revelation is two women, the harlot and the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. And the harlot is... The the harlot of Revelation is a a metaphor or a symbol for apostate Judaism that rejected Messiah. Because you rejected Messiah, just like the old covenant prophets said, you are now a harlot to God. You have been unfaithful. You have worshipped false gods, right? You do not worship Messiah. You will be divorced and executed and killed. God's going to marry a new bride, the body of Christ, those who believe in Christ. And that's what we read about in Revelation 21 and such, right? And so um, this is where I'm going to plug something that's not my own actually but this year uh, the book's coming out by Ken Gentry a revelation commentary called The Divorce of Israel and in that book he makes that argument that revelation is about God is divorcing the old covenant Israel that did not accept Messiah he's divorcing them and executing them according to the dictates of the law of God right you divorce an adulteress and you execute her and then marrying the new bride the bride of Christ what is that that's the end of the old covenant the beginning of the new covenant the consummation of the new covenant that is in other words uh, it is here to stay and now the new bride of God is no longer this physical Israel but it's the spiritual Israel it's the believers in Jesus Christ who are now his bride that's the beautiful big picture of revelation that places it in that first first century fulfills it in the first century but then looks a little bit beyond that you know a little bit beyond to the future and, and at the very end there's a little bit of that but it, its heart and soul is, is describing the new covenant and the beauty of the and the power of the spiritual nature of the new covenant in all these symbolic terms and how it um, replaces that old covenant or overthrows the old covenant, whatever you want. makes it obsolete.
1: Well, we've uh, unfortunately come to the ending time of our talk today. Um, um, do you have a, a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch if you really want to find out more?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, of course, all my books are in Kindle form, paperback, and audio on Amazon. So you can go right there if you want to buy any of them. But if you want to know more about it before you get into it or whatever, my website, Gadawa.com, G O D A W A, has everything. And I wanted to make a website that's very helpful and informative and has a lot of great free stuff for people. So you could just look under, uh, you know, chronic- click the tab on my books chronicles of the apocalypse i've got free articles free books on revelation that you can get um, online right from from the website i've got tons of artwork that you know i like to cast my novels so i have pictures of the characters and stuff and you can read a little bit more about the series if you want to before you buy it but um yeah everything's there at godawa.com and uh it'll be really you'll you'll find it a very helpful and worth your time
1: do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for a Deeper Waters audience today?
0: No, just thanks for having me, Nick. And I, I really appreciate your ministry and your, um, your heart for apologetics and as well as um, you know, just the things we talked about today, your appreciation of the imaginative side that I'm trying to bring into the apologetics world. So I really appreciate your support of that.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again in some other time. But You bet. Okay. But i like to remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Jay Allen Branch. I'm going to talk about his book Born This Way. Is homosexuality genetic or is it something else? For now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off.